I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Team Human is an ad-free, listener-supported project made possible by teammates like Christopher Keach, K.M. Coleman, Hal Hefner, Jacob Sager, Sai, Evan Kuchar, and hopefully you. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support to find the others who gain access to our Discord channel, my paywalled medium posts, archives of my collected work and conversations with luminaries like Timothy Leary and Terence McKenna, and participation in our live Team Human salons in the Kibitz Room. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support and you can join us. I'll see you there. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. Sanctuary for those who question the operating systems that are replacing nature and culture. And a safe place to think and share the most dangerous thoughts of all. There is no solution. No one will save us. We must create the path forward ourselves. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, co-founder of the Sustainable Economies Law Center, and my fellow senior advisor to the Institute for the Future's Equitable Enterprise Initiative, Janelle Orsi. I think if we start to really just listen to ourselves as humans, what makes you feel good on a day-to-day basis? Feeling curious makes me feel good. Loving other people makes me feel good. It's what keeps me going. And I think a lot of us have just been taught by whatever culture or profession we're in to just cut off our feelings. Janelle will be helping me finally let go of my dream for a turnkey solution to better wealth distribution. Looks like we're going to have to do this locally after all. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I've, uh, maybe like you, I've been feeling queasy lately. I thought maybe I was sick. It's almost like like a little seasickness, not vertigo, but like queasy. And I realize it's this, it's this 
feeling that you get, you know, that that moment when you realize that you're seriously sick or uh, a relationship's going to end or you've lost your job or you realize you're about to crash the car. It's it's not panic so much as the the queasiness of realization. Like you see the police lights in the rearview mirror and just ugh. And I feel like we're experiencing a collective queasiness right now. The record temperatures in Europe and the U.S., drought conditions all over the place, wanton invasion of Ukraine, the rise of authoritarianism, the rollback of women's rights, the spread of new diseases, and and more. They all make it hard to move through life in a normal way. I mean, how does one do forward-looking things like take a new job or get married or start a new major project, paint a nursery for an as-yet-to-be-born child, or even plan a trip to the beach or, or, or pick a college or something when they don't have any sense of certainty about the future. One way, I guess it's really two ways to move forward, would be to ignore or deny We've all learned to ignore at least a few moments at a time. That's why we've got TV and Netflix and sports and gossip. After even just half an hour of yoga, I'm more focused on the depth of my chaturanga than that of the rising oceans. And I suppose that's fine as long as it's it's temporary, a way of recharging so that I can then get back to work. Denial is a little bit more tricky, but I still see the appeal. Just conclude that all of these alerts are more the product of an overarching system of control than any true emergencies. It's what you see on Twitter, right? They want us to remain in a state of panic so that we surrender our agency to the government or the cabal. It's the the media. They're working in concert with leftists to magnify the extent of our problems and then seize our assets, our guns, and our nervous systems. And it may sound a little scary on the surface, but it's ultimately, it's a comforting story. Nothing's actually wrong. It's all just propaganda perpetrated by this group of elite, horrible people. If we stop listening to the Democrats and the globalists, then we would just carry on just fine. Nothing wrong. But I don't think this this don't look up strategy is going to work much longer. Uh, Still, I realize why so many people choose it over the alternatives. But if we're going to stand any chance of drawing the denialists out of their delusion and pulling the ignorers away from their distractions, we're going to have to offer them something better than a nightmare, right? The scarier things get, the less likely anyone is going to want to wake up and join us in the harsh light of truth. You know, it's like, hey, wake up, the boat is sinking. No, instead, I think we have to ask people to join us in 
our positive, worthwhile, rewarding, and sometimes even fun approaches to repair. We don't necessarily need people to see the water rising. We just need them to come on and stack the sandbags with us. You know, I understand that people sometimes need wake-up calls, but when every alarm bell is ringing at once, it's really hard to rise to the occasion. Many, many people, they believe that our society, like like any addict, needs to hit bottom before we can admit we have a problem and then forge the solidarity we need to recover together. But unlike an individual addict, our civilization may not be able to hit an absolute bottom and then prove resilient enough to just bounce back. I'm not certain the 12-step model works at scale. And I'm not sure we have to sink to the very depths of despair and self-harm and collateral damage in order to choose a different path. Think of it as, as adopting good bedside manner. We need more people to join us in taking effective measures toward collective flourishing. And most of these activities, from mutual aid and community building to local agriculture and climate remediation, they are good, hard, but satisfying work. It happens outside corporate control. It engenders solidarity. It's less taxing on the environment than most forms of entertainment. And it's absolutely necessary if we want to shepherd as many people and other lives as possible into the future. The surest cure for that queasy sense of impending doom is not to avoid it or deny it, but simply to get to work. And whatever happens after that, at least we'll go through it together. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm usually the guy in the room who explains why one thing or another won't work. I appreciate the visions of economic and cultural crusaders for solving problems at scale, but I'm painfully aware of how those solutions usually externalize harm to some other system or simply ignore their greater damage like stock funds that pretend to do good for the world but are really just the same old index funds with a couple of obvious companies like cigarette makers taken off the list. 
I've been working on a project looking to develop some better mechanisms for economic justice, started by Marina Gorbis at the Institute for the Future. It's called the Equitable Enterprise Initiative, and it's basically an approach to creating opportunities, developing practices, and building institutions that distribute assets equitably among those who contribute value to the system. We do all sorts of conversations, and I had the pleasure of meeting a brilliant lawyer and cartoonist, Janelle Orsi, from the Sustainable Economies Law Center, who has been through a journey a lot like my own, trying to create mechanisms that would make economic justice a whole lot easier to negotiate, and then concluding that there's really no shortcut to people changing their fundamental approach to mutual security. It sounds like a mouthful, but it's a really a long way of saying that the only way to do this stuff is right here on the ground with each other. This is the kind of conversation for which I started this podcast. So here's Janelle Orsi. A few years ago, when um, Hazel Henderson was still alive, a uh, she's a very interesting uh, financial reformer who I both admired and had great questions about. She started this thing that she invited me to with her and Deepak Chopra and Al Gore and some other really big name, good for the world kinds of people that they were doing an ETF, which for people who don't know, an exchange traded fund on the stock market where it's like a mutual fund with lots of stocks, only what they were going to do was gamify social good. And the, the way they would get companies to change their behavior is they would use an algorithm that calculates how much good the company is doing. Like, do they have extended leave, maternal leave for parents when they have kids? Do they let employees contribute employee hour time to tutoring kids in public schools? Do they blah, you know, ending up with nothing much better than the S&P slightly filtered for the worst actors. But the things the companies actually did, the, the principal activity of the company wasn't even really taken into account as part of this. And I was like, and I'm always that person in the room who's like, what the fuck are you thinking? This isn't even really, I'm fine for incremental improvement, but this isn't really even that. All this is going to do is distract people and make them think that they're investing in something good. When look at the companies who won, GE, Microsoft, Monsanto, Walmart, (laughs) Apple, it's the same thing. So I always believed that there's a way to use local economic things to do good, right? So there was a restaurant in my town, 2006, 2007. They borrowed half the money they needed to expand out into the restaurant next to them. Then the 2007 crash happened and the bank wouldn't finish their loan. So I came up with the idea that why don't we do almost like a Kickstarter where you will sell, the restaurant was called Comfort. Why don't we sell Comfort dollars for a dollar now that are worth a dollar twenty at the restaurant when we open the new one? He loved it because he'd rather pay 20 cents in food than 20 cents in, in well, or more in interest. People loved it because they get 20% back on their money, which is better than you're going to do it at Charles Schwab. And everybody was now 
sort of investing their money in their own community, making their main street better, getting a better restaurant in town, having something to talk about with their friends, in theory, making the tax base go up so then the schools get better. You know, it seemed like this virtuous great thing. So then I always thought, why can't we somehow bundle or something those kinds of good things and organic farms and local factories and worker-owned who's-its create some kind of a thing so that all these people who have half a million dollars or a million dollars of good middle-class retirement funds in S&P index nightmare things that are working against their own interests, they could push a button, uh click on this, and put the money in the good side of the ledger instead of the evil side of the ledger. And like as I now found out you, I spent the last sort of 10 years trying to sew together, looking at different organizations and regulations. And, 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 and I got this representative and that legislature and that CSA and this currency person and even a couple of blockchain people, God bless them. If they want to come in and figure something out, they can come. And then I went and, and we're both part of this equitable enterprise thing with Marina Gorbis and the Institute for the future. And I, I, wrote a message to the group like, I want to do this thing. How do we do it? And then you came to the meeting and basically said, Doug, I love you and love this. And it's all beautiful. But this just isn't it. It just doesn't work. And then so I watched your your videos and read your stuff. I watched the one, the really, the really sweet video, The Nightmare Machine of Money Justice. And this is the same thing I've always been saying, but never wanted to on some level believe that there's an underlying operating system of corporate capitalism that has such a lock on all of these, on almost any scaled solution towards economic justice that we can't go that way and must go another. And I guess what I want to know is what finally convinced you that we can't just do it, something even incrementally better. I feel like such an asshole when I'm sitting on a thing with 10 other great equitable enterprise people. And I know at least more than half of them have their own retirement money doing more damage than we're probably doing of good in our conversations. What what do we do about that? And in the long term, what do we do about the fact that everyone's got their friggin' retirement money in evil? And what in the short term are the, the the ways we can fix it? And what convinced you that there is no that that there is no way no turnkey solution? Okay, <laughs> where to begin? Ooh. So, yeah, for the last fifteen years, I became a lawyer about fifteen years ago, and I was very much pulled by the same things that were sparking your interest and joy, like the story about the restaurant and the local community coming together to help finance expansion. And those were things that were very much the seed was local relationships and love and care and wanting Mm. good things to happen in our community. And I thought, well, I'm a lawyer. I just learned about all these legal tools. I should use them. And, you know, when when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So I'm a lawyer. Everything looks like a legal problem to solve. And so I thought, I'm going to become a lawyer who helps people create local worker cooperatives, do local investing so we could keep our money local, create local currencies create community gardens and community land trusts. So I called myself a sharing lawyer because sharing and cooperation was the theme that wove together everything I wanted to do. 
And I thought, well, my role is to help people create the contracts and the entities and the trusts that contain all of this goodness and then help people uh -huh. navigate the regulations. And that's what I've been doing for the last 15 years. But it was about two years ago I started, I mean, literally to feel like odd and weird in my stomach isn't like that I was strange literally... that's what's happening to me it's it's now i no longer have logical obstacles i get nauseous i get actually physically queasy yes. before i logically know what the problem is mm -hmm. yeah yeah our stomachs so are in charge i mean this is the thing <laughs> by focusing on all of these legal tools i was missing one of the biggest insights about being human which is not that we care about what all these legal documents say we care about each other. We care we care about feeling good and we really are driven by our guts and our hearts and just how things feel in relationship and that's what makes organizations work. It doesn't matter what I can write into bylaws of organizations. It matters the relationships that people have and the culture that they're able to sustain and how they work through conflict. And so, you know, I kept helping create cooperatives and one of the biggest challenges was money getting the money they needed to get started. So I then got really into finance law. Like when you go from, I became a lawyer out of social justice motivation. So I didn't even imagine I'd become a finance lawyer. But I started learning of just like learning about what are the things that need to happen to get money from where it is now to where we want it to go into these local community oriented enterprises. And so securities law, finance lender law, investment company law. And what ended up happening is I started helping people create these solutions on larger and larger scales, because in order to comply with these laws, you need a lot of resources, a lot of administrative capacity, because the point of all of it, all of these regulations is to control how the money moves and, and to make sure it gets to where it is guaranteed to go, that people fulfill the promises they make when they're handling other people's money. So it's not just evil. In other words, so there's there's some of the regulations are there to actually kind of protect man on the street from rapacious or evil Ponzi scheme kind of people. Definitely. Okay. Definitely. And yeah, I guess in theory, corporations would have run rampant over our society and accumulated all the wealth by now if there weren't checks on their engagement and fraud and other bad mm -hmm. behavior. So there are really important purposes to all these laws. But when you need all of this um, administrative capacity and when you need to control everything that people do, you end up creating these very bureaucratic, controlling, coercive institutions. And it takes away that spark of love and care and relationality that brings people together to do these things in the first place. And that, to me, is the most powerful thing. And when we kind of pave over it with layers and layers of legal documents, we lose it. So It should be possible to say, so I look at a model like, uh, I, I know it's really hard for me to just take people's money and invest it in lots of little local farms and things because the SEC doesn't like that. And, you know, you've got to be a, a real listed. If I want something to be as easy as you can click on it at Charles Schwab, I'll have to be a real mutual fund or a real ETF or a real corporation myself. So then I was thinking, what if I tried to create like the Berkshire Hathaway of good stuff. So Berkshire Hathaway, for people who don't know, is this big company that's owned by, started by Warren Buffett. And it's basically a way 
to invest like Warren invests. So all the company really is, is a bunch of insurance companies and a whole bunch of stock in other things. But because it's a company that owns the stock, you could just buy shares of that company and then own a little bit of Coke, a little bit of Microsoft, a little bit of Apple. So I thought, what if I start a corporation that's just investing in like local farms and co-ops and good things, and then I have an IPO of my corporation, put it on the stock exchange and tell everybody, oh, the way to invest in everything good and local across the United States is to buy our ticker symbol. But that wouldn't work. I don't think it's going to transform our world. <laughs> I think the problem is the people who put their money in it, they want their money back, right? Or at least some of it. And they want it with it. a return. Yeah. Right. But they wouldn't get as much. You'd have to... The email I get a lot is from people who are upper middle class and above saying, I've got $6.2 million in my retirement account. I'm willing to take half of that and put it towards, you know, less profitable, but good for the world things. What can I do? And I'm really stuck for what to tell them to do other than it's harder work than just picking a different thing on Charles Schwab. You're going to have to look around your community at what needs money and what, what, things are happening and it might and I try to tell it might be fun to find out what businesses are starting and what enterprises need your support but that's sort of not where they want to go with it yeah it takes a lot of time to look into each of these enterprises and to understand what they're doing and for those enterprises this is the thing is I mostly work with the enterprises that are receiving the money so I'll give an example of East Bay permanent real estate cooperative they're based in Oakland California they own several real estate projects and are largely black and people of color led and are trying to help stabilize particularly the black community in Oakland, both with housing and commercial spaces. And so we help them do a securities offering under Regulation A, which is a federal law. And at the moment, they're able to take investments from people in about 23 different states. So you can buy shares for up for $1,000 a share, and then the cooperative intends to pay dividends of around 1.5% per year. So it's not this windfall return. It's trying to a little bit track what might typically be inflation. Of course, right. inflation is it's a different thing right now. Different yeah. at the moment right now. <laughs> in any case, but I was thinking, what are they doing in Oakland? They're trying to stabilize communities that have already had their land basically stolen by banks through particularly the last financial crisis, the foreclosures and evictions, about half of the black community in Oakland has already been displaced out of Oakland. And so they've lost all of the social ties and community roots. And the cooperative is trying to rebuild that. But to have to buy real estate at market prices using money from people who want that money back and a small return is just putting all kinds of pressure on the community when what we need to be doing is repairing, like giving that money uh, back. And right. so, of course, I want people to put money into the cooperative so they can buy this real estate. It's still much cheaper capital than a bank loan. But really, we just need to give money to communities, no strings right. attached. It becomes like Haiti or something, but just smaller. So, you know, the IMF or the World Bank gives all this money to Haiti, mm. and then Haiti's in debt for the last 50 years and, and can't get out of it, and different corrupt regimes take it, and you end up just creating a new debtor class. Or yeah. in the very real estate crisis that you're talking about, not that anyone meant for this to be, although I half suspect they did, what they did was they got 
all different kinds of people in land that cost more than they could really afford or should be able to afford and gave them crazy little leveraged five-year arm interest-free interest-only mortgages. Yeah, I can get you in that house. I can get you in that apartment and got them in there to appoint places that no, when the loans reset, they couldn't afford to stay in them. When real estate stopped going up, they couldn't refinance at better rates. And then they lost their homes to whom? To the very people that gave them the loans that they shouldn't have been giving them anyway. They got the property back. So it was a really clever way to dispossess the middle class from homes by putting them in homes you know, better than they should have been able to afford. Oops. Exactly. Yeah. And now we're trying to correct it. But but again, I guess you're saying if we correct it through more loans, we're just kicking the can down the road. Yeah, we're using the same tools that created the crisis. And just because there are maybe loans on much better, more patient terms for the community, they're still loans. There's still this incredible burden that's going to force the community to engage in a certain kind of enterprise and generate the cash flow when one of the community needs something totally different. And so really right. what I want to ask people with the $6 million in savings is, what do you need $6 million for? What most people get by and live fairly well with much less than that. And so once you've accumulated $6 million, what is the assumption that even makes somebody believe that they are entitled to keep that, to invest it and get it back? Oh, I'll tell you their assumptions. COVID, monkeypox, climate change, mm. a generation or two of kids who they're not convinced are going to get into the Ivy League schools that they got into and won't be able to maintain the privilege that that they and their parents managed to earn. Yeah. It, fear, pretty much. Fear. And and I always argue it comes from not knowing your neighbors. You know, the only reason yeah. we need, and all of us do, we need a good retirement plan is because there's no one around to take care of us when we get old. We don't trust that our neighbors will will and they won't <laughs> are going to mm-hmm. take care of us. No, they will. See, this is where I do have right. faith in people. And, you know, it's like babies. They're born kind of wanting to be helpful. And, you know, this is what neuroscience and psychology studies are showing. Is like we are born wanting to connect and, with and take care of each other. And so I've decided to live my life as um, an experiment in that. Like I trust that so much. I started a 401k for myself and it was a 401k that I could actually write the checks myself and invest in these cooperatives that I care about. But then I realized, no, like, no, I don't want these cooperatives to take my money and have to pay it back to me. I just want to give to them. I cashed out my 401k, which wasn't very much money, but still, you know, I paid the penalty because I just want people to have money to do good things now. And I gave the money away. And it's two people that I have a relationship with already. And having done this work for 15 years, I just have this sense that, well, there's so many people that I care about. They also care about me. And that if I needed money, they would show up for me in the same way that it's my impulse to show up for Mm. them and give them money without strings attached. And so we're seeing it more and more. Yeah. I mean, this is what I said to the the five billionaires when they wanted to know how to uh, maintain control of their security force after the apocalypse, you know, yeah. it's crazy sci-fi <laughs> scenarios they're in. And I said, well, the way to make sure your head of security takes care of you after the apocalypse is why don't you pay for his daughter's bat mitzvah today? And they all left. And it was sort of a Jew joke, you know, because you, you don't imagine the head of security of a, a being, you know, of the Navy SEALs being this Jewish guy with a, a bat mitzvah daughter. But I was trying to impress upon them that 
after the apocalypse, if they look at you and they've got the gun and you're the guy who paid for their daughter's bat mitzvah, they're not going to shoot you. Right. Mm. You're mm-hmm. you were there for them. And that's it's it's I hate to even call it reciprocal altruism because even that sounds so transactional. But at worst, it's reciprocal altruism that we're just that's what a community a community is. So your argument would be when people tell me I've got all this money and I don't like what it's doing is to say, well, how much of that money do you really, really need? And why don't you do just give the other money to people that mm-hmm. need it? Yeah, definitely. And this problem of what do we actually need, there's so many weird and skewed answers to that, including the people who are imagining needing to hire security, right? Or they're right. imagining that they have to take care of every everyone in, a, in all kinds of different disaster scenarios. And then the question is like, how do you expect people without a million dollars to survive in that situation. Are you, you going to feel good? And You don't. Yeah. They're not going to survive. But then what about the people who are living below the, the water line in Bangladesh? Where are they mm-hmm. going to go in 10 years, right? Right. Yeah. So it's a very us in that mindset where the money is, I'm charging my battery so I can survive when everybody mm-hmm. else's batteries are, are worn down. Yeah. I have to think it's turning their stomach in all kinds of knots as well. I don't think, you know, the people who think that, that they're going to fortify themselves and survive while the rest of the world is in chaos. Does that feel good in their stomachs? Like I would feel nauseous if that were the way that I was thinking. It's like, what's meaningful anymore? Why even live on this planet? Well, sorry, I wrote the book I just wrote because in some ways it's a positive fantasy for them. In some ways, climate change and disaster gives them the excuse to do what they wanted to do all along, which was build, you know, in Xanadu, did Kublai Khan a pleasure dome erect? You know, they want a virtual reality equipped domed paradise in, you know, New Zealand or up in the pristine waters of northern Canada with some, you know, indigenous servants teaching them ayahuasca rituals while they eat, you know, permaculture grasses. (laughs) (laughs) That is quite vivid. (laughs) But I hear it from them. And the more and the odd thing is the more they trip, the clearer that vision gets for them. You know, the more I would trip, the more Mm. untenable that vision would become for me. And it kind of all is one, everything's connected. How could you yeah. have a good trip when you know people are? Yeah, I I just have to think it's hurting people. And it, it really is so much like an addiction. Mm. It's kind of like when you're feeling scared or terrible about yourself or whatever it might be, whatever your addiction of choice is, let's say it's alcohol, it does give you this temporary feeling of like, of like freedom and relief. And similarly, accumulating just a little more wealth makes you feel just a little safer. I'm just a little safer today than I was yesterday. And even in... And it's this addiction, it's this really misinformed habit loop where they just keep acquiring and acquiring and acquiring and it relieves fear temporarily, but that fear is right back the next day and then they got to get another billion dollars. But it's like at some point we got to realize this is not, this is, this is hurting us individually right. it's hurting us so right and so it's really it's two different mindsets we're talking about one that both you and I, I would say suffered from it, but it's too strong that we both applied for years is the kind of hacker mentality to the law and money. And in some ways, we got the hacker mentality because of the digital age teaching us that all of this stuff that seemed like closed source, read only phenomena, banking, money, all this, it's all 
we could engineer. We're all Bucky Fuller. We can re-engineer society to serve human needs instead. Let's tinker with this. And I look at the number of organizations and things that you did. Just like 60 major hacker projects that you did. How could we hack retirement accounts to be able to do this? How can we hack stock to be able to do that? How can we hack co-op law to be able to do this? So hack, 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 hack. All like, like this beautiful Lego almost a, a Lego-like mentality. Oh no, let's just put this piece over here. You know what I mean? Each one was based on an insight and innovation and a drive and a goal toward that. And it seemed so easy, right? And I love the original, the original aim, the original, uh, uh, where is it? The, the law center's work. And that's the, that, that, yeah, that you work with is to build an ecosystem for financial justice, you know, and it sounds, it's what everybody, all the sort of game B and con- resilience and, and uh, humane technology and all these systems thinkers, that's what they're, they're still exactly there. We can, we can rebuild him. We, are, <laughs> we have the technology, uh-huh. you know, but there was a moment and that's how I'm really interested in what's the moment when you saw that, that you were dealing with kind of the frame rather than the soul or that there's not enough pieces in the world to build this, that it's not a matter of code. It's a matter of something else. It was really a slow unfolding. And some Mm. of it has to do with having a growing number of indigenous clients. So my organization is called Sustainable Economies Law Center. And a lot of what we're doing now is helping people create land-based projects and communities and several indigenous folks. And they often had this weird kind of visceral reaction to some of the legal tools we would create and present and just be like, that's, that's just not how things work. You need to come hang out with us and see like, that's, that's not how governance works here. It's much more emergent and organic and relational. And so I was like, I really need to decolonize my mind a little bit. I started reading more books about indigenous cultures Hmm. I also started reading a lot more about nature, how the cells in our bodies work, how forests and ecosystems work. And I realized none of this has to rely on contracts and corporations. <laughs> like Life is amazing and has created infinite diversity and in thriving on this earth without contracts and corporations. So why do I think it's so important to come in with these legal tools? And then I realized, I was realizing more and more, when we come in and try to get people to engineer these systems of justice, like through democratic governance and cooperatives and more equitable distribution systems for cooperative assets, all of this, we're disrupting that seed of love and care that brought people together to form the cooperative to begin with. And I kept seeing all the ways that we were showing up with our legal tools and disrupting that care and nurturance. The challenge for me in that, though, is, you know, especially when I wrote Team Human, the book, I relied a lot on nature imagery and, you know, the the way that roots of the trees connect under the soil and exchange nutrients with each other. And it's a collaborative thing. They're not really all competing for sunlight. They're sharing sunlight, all that stuff. And, you know, and I get a call from Steve Bannon that he loves Team Human. And that, and I realized that same natural imagery is used by fascists to say, oh, look at the Jews. They came up with the laws in the desert as if people are no good and need to be guided by these legal mm. frameworks. You know what I mean? Civilization itself is this Zionist project to repress the great fascist blood and soil connection that we really have. Law is still important, right? Law is still there to to 
protect the vulnerable mm -hmm. from yeah. the wicked. I mean, <laughs> right? Yeah. So there's a balance. I mean, it's not like we get rid of all the law and move into pure loving anarchy or certainly can't do yeah. it all at once. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just put your finger on the exact space that I'm in grappling every mm -hmm. day, kind of going back and forth between these polarities of control and openness or or control and flow, mm -hmm. because I know that humans have this intuitive desire and capacity to care for each other and to devise infinitely creative ways of figuring things out and taking care of each other. I know we have that. And then I also know there's all these things that disrupt that, including the world that we live in being so scary and already having enculturated ourselves into this this very individualistic culture where we each have to accumulate wealth. So there's a lot that disrupts that more intuitive way of caring. So I've come to view the law as still being necessary, law and legal structures, to help build some basic foundations that keep us from exploiting each other. But I think that the law has just, I think we're just way out of balance. Yeah. So if I'm holding these two polarities and trying to balance them, we have put far too much emphasis on control. So then the question is, what's the minimum level of control or promises we want to make to each other that will help us feel stable? Right. And so many of the people writing the laws and writing the systems of control are no longer doing it with the best interests of humanity at heart. They're creating regulations that favor their own, I mean, Uber's, when Uber is writing the regulations for taxi cabs in a city, they're not thinking, how do we really help Joe get from A to B in the most efficient and energy, <laughs> energy efficient mm -hmm. way possible, right? They're thinking, how do we uh, develop a monopoly? But, but a lot of you, you, so, so what we're talking about is, is the difference between, as you put it in, in, in one of your videos, the difference between fixing the machine and killing the machine, mm -hmm. you know, and, if we do realize, okay, we don't fix the machine by adding more onto the machine, but taking pieces away that don't work, you know, we don't just kill it, right? That's the Bannon. Let's just burn it down. Let's run the machine on 120 or, you know, beyond capacity so it blows up. You know, that's the accelerationist Peter Thiel, Bannon technologist sort of view of, of it. There's, a, there's another way to, to dismantle the machine. I mean, I guess what I've always argued is the sort of the stuff I saw in um, the Courageous Courage book, that the way we dismantle the machine is we replace what we get from the machine with much more nurturing local things. So if I'm getting my food from my neighbors and my neighbors are getting it from me, we don't have to go to McDonald's. If I go to my local farm. I don't need Walmart's grocery, things like that. So they deflate naturally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do think it is a matter of building something new based on nurturance and really trying to hold that, that value of care and love. And so as we're building local communities and making promises to each other of, of uh, like, you will get this much food from this community garden, as we're making promises to each other, then the question is, what system do we work want to rely on to make sure those promises are carried out. And the, when, I, when I talk about the machine and the legal system, I'm talking about a system that relies at the end of the day on courts and mm. our court system. And then our courts, in order to make sure that their orders are carried out, they rely on policing and violence and coercion, force. And so if we want to go to our communities and create something new, we actually do need to disconnect from that system because we know that most disputes don't go to court, but they are still 
sorted out under the threat of going right. to court. So they're still coercive. So if there's a community garden and people are not fulfilling their promises to each other, what are the relationships or the ways of coming together that could help hold people accountable without having to rely on that coercive legal system? And I think it's culture, good relationships, care. And I mean, so you're talking in some ways about commonsing on all different levels. Mm-hmm. Commonsing. Yes. <laughs> this I is a new it, word we need to add to our vocabulary. The verb yeah. of common to commons. But mm-hmm. as I'm sure you know, I mean, I certainly do. It's really hard to argue for the commons in most situations now. It's like people really mm. are having trouble grasping you know, they think tragedy of the commons. They think of the commons as like the bathroom at the rest stop. You know, no one cares about it. Yeah. So everyone pees on the, on the seat, you know, <laughs> and the more people who pee on the seat, the more people are going to pee on the seat because you can't get close to the thing. So mm-hmm. th- I think that's the way people are looking at sort of non-privatized spaces is a- anything public, anything communal is just going to be trashed. But no, but a commons is actually an agreement with a bunch of people to be responsible. And it's an enforced, I mean, there's rules, right? In a commons. Right. And they may not be written down. They may just be custom. Like customarily, we always clean off the toilet seat. There's no written rule in our <laughs> households, <laughs> or right. at least in the ones I've lived in. Uh, so it's not a rule, but it's a custom and it's enforced by social expectation, And people will say something to each other if it's not. And we'll probably change our behaviors because we care about each other and we want to have good relationships. And so the thing about most commons that have been really successful, and this is based on people who have studied the commons like Eleanor Ostrom, David Bollier, is that they're small. Most things happen in small groups. And if they're large, they're many nested small things within a larger thing. And so it's all relational. It's all face-to-face accountability. I don't know anybody in the highway rest stop, but I know all the people in my house. And that creates very different behavior. So relationality is what's important. Right. And that's why, I mean, I keep going back to anarcho-syndicalism, you know, which is this word that someone accused me of it when I did a talk about economics in Germany. And I had no idea. I was like, let me, let me, I asked that. He said, are you an anarcho-syndicalist? I said, I don't know, hum a few bars. (laughs) (laughs) But I looked at it on Wikipedia and it sounds like what you're talking about, that it's lots of different sort of local cod industries and communities that are kind of networked or nested together into larger trading entities so they can you know each get things from each other but like a world of kibbutzes sort of where we're all watching out for each other socially educationally and economically at the same time yeah and it's like the only places you see it are places where people had to do it you know which is back to the collective courage book um um jessica's book where she writes about you know black people in america weren't allowed to participate in the greater economy so they had to create you know their own uh, local economic mechanisms that were completely circular and ended up doing better than the neighbor neighbors white ones that were dependent on external foreign finance I really do think that is the answer, except for that we're in this current social reality and economic reality and culture that we can't just we can't just let go of all control or engagement with state power and just hope we're going to sort it out through lots of small cooperatives. I don't think that will work. I do think the role of the state should to be to come in a lot stronger against, say, corporate 
land grabs and corporate wealth accumulation because that is the biggest threat of all and make space, create protected spaces where if there's still land in your community, it's not owned by a corporation traded on Wall Street. <laughs> if there's still land in the community that the community can own and control and collectively steward, make sure that goes to the community and not to these corporate land grabbers. And so this is where I feel like law and the state have a major role to play in protecting that commons and preventing corruption from creeping in. I mean, the problem is most communities like mine say, when we do find a piece of land and it's like, okay, we could steward this as a community, but we actually need to steward it in such a way that it increases our town revenues because the in- health insurance for all of our town workers has gone up. We need the funding to pay for it. We're either going to raise the taxes or figure out, let's put a Walmart on that piece of community land or create something that it's, you know what I mean? We're all, because we're trying to exist on both levels at once. Yeah. I think the transition is going to be awkward and uncomfortable because, yeah, I mean, as we're so reliant right now on on corporations and in, like, say, in the city of Oakland, where I live, the planning department really wants to make, like, open the doors for big corporations to come in and buy the land and build high-rise condos where people will come in and pay really high property taxes so the city can still have money. Yeah. But to rely on that, we're giving up all of our power to big owners and big money and so we need to find new ways but we need to we need to first cut that off like that system is not legitimate not good for us yeah and it's funny because you know people you see it even in a city like new york we saw that happen all the little shoemakers and bodegas and things go out of business as the starbucks and you know jamba juice and whatever big companies and real estate and td waterhouse and everything come in there and on the one hand, it sounds silly to people. What? You mean you're mad that one kind of business is coming instead of another, or you're just, oh, you're nostalgic for the past? It's like, no, that's not exactly it. It's that even in a city as big as New York, there was a local reality. There was local circular business, and now there's not. Now there's placeholders. Even the apartments are are like stock certificates for sovereign wealth funds. Each apartment is an investment. It's not a home. Mm-hmm. So where yeah. where where's the people? Where do the people go in that reality? Yeah, and that's the thing. The people. I do think you know, team human. We do just need to get back to what makes us feel good as humans. And I I have a very strong feeling that working at that comfort cafe that you mentioned versus mm. working at Starbucks or eating there or drinking there that it just feels better. And it feels better because of the human relationships. And it feels better because there's not a big corporation controlling every move you make as a worker and every button you press. And I want it to. And I'm, I do get scared. I mean, it's part of why I started the Team Human Project. I get scared that there's some people or all of us at certain times would rather go to the anonymous place where you don't have to know and be nice to the waiter. You know, because yeah. human relationships are hard. It's like, oh, right, there's the waiter. And I know. And his daughter and my daughter are in the same class at school. And they might have had a fight last week. And now I'm going to go into the restaurant. And, oh, no. You know, it's like the local, when things are truly local, they're complex. But that's, mm-hmm. I mean, of course, that's the whole challenge and joy of being human, which is why on the other side, other, and it seems out of place in, in your work, but it's not, is you talk about, as I do too, people finding sources of awe. Mm-hmm. 
that when people find sources of awe, it somehow retrieves that human side of them. It's almost like immune therapy. You know, it triggers your human connective aliveness, your, your fearlessness. Yeah, I think if we start to really just listen to ourselves as humans, what makes you feel good on a day-to-day basis? Feeling curious makes me feel good. Loving other people makes me feel good. It's what keeps me going. And I think a lot of us have just been taught by whatever culture or profession we're in to just cut off our feelings. Like lawyers, big time. Mm. As soon as people enter law school, they become depressed so quickly. And it's because we have to stuff our feelings down. It's like, no, what feels right and feels good is not the answer. There's legal doctrine that says what is right or wrong. And so I've had to do a lot of personal healing of being like, what are those knots in my stomach that I feel? Why do I feel that? What feelings am I repressing? And just, yeah, letting myself feel my feelings has been so key to just understanding, yeah, what will make us, what will, what will help us come together as communities and make this actually work? But I understand, I mean, as now, you know, I'm past 60 now, which is really weird, that you go, you, you hit you know, 30, 40 and have kids and you have a whole set of worries about them and their future. Do I have enough? The first thing I thought when they put the baby in my hand in the hospital was, how much money do I have? Isn't that (laughs) odd? But that's America, right? And the first thing I thought on hitting 60 is, okay, retirement, you know? And and the reason I think about retirement in a certain way is because I think I'm going to have to take care of myself. My money is my whether or not I have someone to get me to the bathroom is going to depend on whether I have the cash. You know, and I think a lot of people are looking, they look at that, uh, at their lives as not just the competition of middle age, but survival. You know, how am I going to, yeah. and that's not the right place to, to have. And then most of my friends who make it to old age, great ones, Timothy Leary, Robert Anton Wilson, even Are You Serious or Genesis Peorage, they end up doing GoFundMes at the end of their life to keep themselves going. And thank God mm. they have people to fund them, but not everybody does, you know? Yeah. It's scary. So it, I guess it's hard to engender the fearlessness we're talking about when you're afraid. Yeah. It's hard. That fear of death, it's in us very strong. That's part of what helps us survive. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I've learned people are very scared of retirement when you ask them what what does it bring up for them? And it's because there's this picture of being alone, of being poor, and not having people to care for you. Mm. Uh, and a lot of this, I do just feel like it's healing our relationships to each other and showing up for each other and asking other people to take care of us and offering to take care of others that is going to help us build trust that that's not going to happen regardless of what money we have. If we're really focusing now on becoming loving people and letting others care for us, we'll have a culture where we show up. But now we just sort of feel like, wow, it's so disgusting to have to take care of me. Like a lot of people who they fear, fear that they'll be physically disabled and that no one would want to take care of them unless they were getting paid. And that's like, no, taking care of other people is so beautiful. It yeah. feels good. That's what we do intuitively. So we do for babies. Why wouldn't we do it for older people or people who are disabled? I remember there was a synagogue in Manhattan that once uh, the internet started, they wanted me to come and consult with them on whether it's against Jewish law for an elderly person to attend Sabbath through the internet by Zoom rather than being brought there by one of the kids who goes to teens who do that. 
And I said, I don't think there's anything wrong with the for the old person doing Shabbat on Zoom, but it's too damaging to the young person who's now no longer having the opportunity mm. to bring that old person to Sabbath because yeah. that's who's getting served. You know, they learning yeah. what that is. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think they took me seriously, you know, because it, it sounded so, uh, I don't know, but it's so true to me. That's like the truest part of it. Such a beautiful response. Service is the opportunity, you know, service yeah. is the way we learn. It's And then once you get that, there's nothing more fun than service. You know, there's nothing more, more fulfilling. You know, yeah. And it's not self-sacrifice. I don't mean that at all in some horrible way. It's just great. You don't have to starve. You just go have fun and help people. You know, it's a boy, invite invite an old lady to dinner who doesn't have that many friends around. And you realize, you realize everything. Then you go into what you're talking about, your state of awe. You go, oh my God, look what you lived through. What did you learn there? How did you figure that out? What yeah. you know, yeah. but boy. It's that drive to contribute and to be of service that makes, uh, like, for example, the legal hackers among us want to devise all these really fancy legal tools that bring about justice. We are all doing this because we want to support the thriving of the lives around us. And mm. so, yeah, of course, we all want to show up and do something. That's what we do as humans. So, yeah, sometimes we don't help in the most helpful ways, but it's still that impulse is there. Right. And I guess, I mean, to be clear, we're not saying that people shouldn't go work at the SEC or in the federal government and try to make things better at all levels of this fractal we call life. I mean, whatever you're called to, there's work that needs to be done. I'm glad, you know, there's someone nice who wants to be president and, you know, they, <laughs> and all those structures can at least not be in the way, could be less in the way of us getting to nurture ourselves. You know, they could all be tweaked to optimize nurture, even if it's not where you want to spend your energy right now. Yeah. You know, it's true, though. I've 15 years out of law school. I've known a lot of people come out of law school and say, I'm going to go work in the system so I could change the system. But it's incredible how much they just start to behave and think like the system. And so there is a, a high degree of healing and political education and accountability to the community that we really need to build in if we're going to go into those institutions and think that we're going to be able to change them from the inside. Right. And in the meantime, I mean, I always quote my chiropractor friend, Mark Filippi, whenever I would be sick, he's like, okay, this time we're going to do this. And in the meantime, we're going to do that. So the next time we don't have to do this. So, you know, you take a critical, you know, it's like, okay, you can go on antibiotics now for this infection. But in the meantime, then we're going to strengthen your immune system. So the next time you get this infection, we're just going to give you olive leaf extract and you're going to be a lot better. Mm -hmm. You know, and I feel like it's sort of that way with with our economic problems, like, okay, occasionally we're going to have to deal with, all right, we're going to need social security, we're going to need this, you're going to need a retirement fund. But over the long term, we can sort of re uh, uh, retrieve certain social agreements and behaviors so that the next time we won't have to resort to these same measures. Yeah, that makes sense in the chiropractor context. And now I'm just I'm trying to figure out how do we make sense of that, the need to kind of do things step by step or think about the long game in the context of a world where climate change is putting so many threats on us right now. And instead of decreasing emissions, we're still increasing them globally. This also, like, I don't want to start making such 
really dramatic, drastic changes that destabilize people and freak them out. But that's also like, that's also what we need. So I don't know, like the timelines are really warped and weird right now. Right. Right. I mean, the weird thing is that the thing, and I always get in trouble for this one, but yes, things are critical, but that doesn't mean we should do a sudden dramatic uh, transition to renewable energy overnight because we'd have to dig so much crap out of the ground, so much lithium and batteries and this and solar panels. We couldn't survive the transition. The amount of energy expended to get everyone in a Tesla would, mm -hmm. would blow up the world in, a, in an instant. So exactly. the only real choice right now is to do less energy intensive stuff, mm -hmm. which shouldn't yeah. sound scary to people because then it's like, oh, you mean... So just come on over to my house or let's just hang out. Let's just, why don't we sit outside and talk? It's like every moment that you just be and play or have mm -hmm. sex is good for the environment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. I mean, we do need to change what our everyday lives look like dramatically, dramatically, like the degree to which we need to decrease emissions and then our inability as a society to actually transition to renewables means like we need to reduce consumption by say 80% right now if we really want to have any hope. And that means stop going to work, grow your own food, learn to recycle water, learn how to compost, do composting toilets, all of this. And people are are starting to make these things, these changes incrementally. But yeah, a lot of it relies on having land, which is why my work has really come to focus so much right now on getting people land, getting people land without debt mm. burden, uh, questioning why wealthy people have accumulated so much money and feel entitled to it, and trying to get some of that money to move directly to particularly black and indigenous land projects so that people can start transforming their day-to-day -day lives now. Yeah, I mean, I knew of some hmm. big indigenous land stewardship project, and I got an email from one of the people running it saying, you know, some very good, well-meaning, lefty, progressive blockchain people have come and said that we should use the blockchain to maintain authority over our land, and that that's not the path, right? No, I don't know. I think blockchain is, it's, you know, people talk about it. If we could just automatize the redistribution of wealth and the algorithms will carry it out for us. But if, if the spark that makes people want to do that to begin with is reparations and care and survival and thriving together, if that's the motivation, why not just do that? Why don't just direct the funds and the resources to that rather than have to come up with a very complicated self-executing crypto system to make that happen so i feel i feel like it's a huge distraction to feel like we actually right. need crypto to make us do the right thing we can do the right thing we've always had the ability to do that right but without the crypto we won't have a record of who did what right things for whom <laughs> <laughs> it's like you want to tell them don't worry god is watching <laughs> well god. it gets you back to the small scale because you know in a small enough community you know who left pee on the toilet seat right it's like we, <laughs> right when whenever we're small joe enough to know each there, other yeah whenever joe comes out of that room <laughs> there's pee on the seat yeah yeah, yeah. 
I'm seeing really inspiring acts of redistribution of wealth, of people taking leaps and trusting that if I give money to a particular indigenous-led land trust, that I'm going to have a better chance of survival than if I had kept that money myself because it's changing the culture. It's saying, we need to come together. We need to share the land, steward the land. We need to regenerate ecosystems, and we need to teach our communities how to do that. That feels like a good survival strategy to me rather than keeping money to myself. So I, I feel like if enough people are taking that as the strategy, we'll start to see wealth flow in different ways. And I'm seeing it. It's, it's making me hopeful. Right. Yeah. I mean, and what I'm mainly trying to do is convince the people I get to hang out with sometimes, these sort of tech bro rich people, that there is no plan B. You know, that there is, that the best thing they could do with their money is make the neighborhood that we all live in better. You know, and I get it because I was raised this way as a kid. You know, my parents got out of the ghetto. You know, they got out of the ghetto and the they were instilled with the idea that if you live in a bad neighborhood, you go to school, work hard so you can get out of the bad neighborhood to do a better one, you know? Mm-hmm. And I get it why they think that way, especially, you know, if you escape from the czar and, and the Nazis, you're running. But we're at this place now where the whole world is that neighborhood. There's no, <laughs> there's no other neighborhood mm-hmm. to run to. So then what? You know, and if I could somehow convince people there's no neighborhood to go to, there's no better, you can go to what, Redwood Hills for a while and stave them off, but there's still a tent village right right on the edge of town. So how good is your neighborhood? You know, the bigger you have mm-hmm. to put up the walls to maintain it. That means it's not a good neighborhood. It means it's a fort. You know, so yeah. if they can start thinking that way, then right, then then it's actually in their self-interest to distribute. Yeah. You know, and it really doesn't take much to start building the relationships with the people around us. It It's transformative uh, to just start, at, you know, sharing meals with neighbors For me, this is part of what led me down the road that I've gone down as a lawyer to think I'm not going to be up there like writing laws or doing big litigation. I'm going to be helping people connect with each other and share at neighborhood levels. Was I was living in a neighborhood where I we would cook meals with neighbors. It was kind of casual co-housing. There was you know shared laundry facilities facilities and everything, and and there was just a feeling of safety and well-being that I got from that that made me mm. feel like I don't need to become some. I don't need to accumulate wealth. Like communities can take care of each other, and it's not that hard to begin to build it. You feel the difference immediately. That's the thing. You feel the difference immediately. So maybe then that's the the easiest thing to do is to create opportunities for people to experience cultures of care, cultures of nurturing, experiences of awe. And they go, oh, this is a better way. Why not? Yeah. 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 Just small experiences. And there's, I don't know, I'm tr- I've am i been thinking with a group of people how to even create these. We just brought together a group of people over 16 weeks. Well, they met every other week for an hour and a half. And we called it the Reimagining Retirement Lab. Hmm. And it was people, many people who are kind of organizer activist folks, but they were also thinking about, yeah, what is what does my retirement look like? And we started just kind of imagining our futures in much more interdependent ways. And I think for the people involved, just anecdotally talking to many of them, that they're feeling so much more trust that communal collaborative solutions can actually take care of us just by simply having been in this this collective space in a very mm. caring we also created a lot of space for vulnerability, a lot of space for joy and creativity in that. And, and that immersion into that 
I think helped us like transform our way of thinking. So yeah, how to create those experiences for more people? That's a big question. So for our little audience, we're right now, I mean, I guess it's going to be internet based to start, but where can they kind of plug in to, it sounds like like the land trust movement is sort of the, one of the best, easiest places to plug in if you want to kind of learn about some alternative approaches to, to commonsing in the future and getting, uh, distributing resources. Where, where should they sort of look? Yeah. Well, learning about the commons is a very good step. Even learning what yeah. that word means and how it shows up. And books by David Bullier are mm-hmm. my favorite. Think like a commoner, free, fair, and alive. I wish every human could read that book. So that's, you know, as far as learning, but then it's a matter of showing up in our communities and looking around and seeing where is that actually showing up. And the sad truth is a lot of things that call themselves cooperatives or call themselves community land trusts are not actually operating in that way. They're just reproducing the same old kind of hierarchical structures, sadly. And so paying close attention to like, where do the relationships in the organizations in our communities, where do they feel good? Where is everyone actually meaningfully participating? And where are people bringing their creativity and actually feeling very intrinsically motivated to come together and do things? Um, So I don't know. I think it's it's a matter of showing up and getting involved and paying attention really to how things feel, because that does make a big difference. And certainly people should take a look at uh, you can just go on YouTube and and search for uh, the nightmare machine of money justice and see a great description of of how we move from from cartoon squirrels to which is a beautiful approach but to an, an ultimately more realistic approach to uh, mutual security i hate to even call it security let's use a, a yeah. jeremy lent word mutual flourishing you know mutual it's like- flourishing <laughs> yes oh yeah everyone read jeremy lent's most recent book the web of meaning yeah. one of the most influential things i've ever read yeah yeah we had him we had him on it's definitely He's, hmm. he's, he's on the path, but good. So I guess I will stop worrying now about taking the next 10 years to create a push button ETF for people to move their retirement accounts to and fix the world. I'm so glad I could help save you from wasting your time on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But when I am in a group of these wealthy people on a zoom or something who want to, you know, all those let's reimagine humanity, blah, blah things. I will ask them, how much do you have in your retirement account? Could you give away half of that today? If not, why not? And if so, let me help you pick the places to put it. Um, which mm-hmm. is a nicer, it's a much more engaging conversation to have, you know, to yeah. watch people let go of their fire escape, you know, They're, everyone's mm-hmm. got the, in case yeah. of emergency, break glass. It's like, dude, that break, it's not going to work anyway. So <laughs> let's break mm-hmm. the glass today right. and get those yeah. resources out there where they're needed so you don't have that emergency uh, down the road. Yeah. And I think as much as possible, giving that money to organizations where you do have some connection, maybe it's because they're very local to your community, or you know the people involved, which means getting out there and showing up for things Mm. and learning about them. But relational giving is so much more powerful. And so if someone's going to make a really generous gift to an organization that's just down the block doing community gardening, to know that community garden's there and you have some relationship with people involved, 
that feels like security. It feels like safety. It feels like thriving. And so encouraging people to build relationships and give away the money and to do Mm. the two hand in hand feels important. Yeah. It's good for the world and good for you too. Mm -hmm. It's been great talking to you, Douglas. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my God. Thanks so much for coming and doing this and and rescuing me from my despair. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't cry at all either. That's I didn't great. Cry. I hope I was yeah. nice enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what I mean? Because it's a disillusioning on a certain level to go, look, this trip that you've been on is not really the trip. Um, yeah. But it doesn't mean it was a failure. We had to go through it. We had to learn. Right. Yeah. And I have a lot of compassion for myself for having been on that trip. And I know Mm -hmm. that it came from love. And then it was just misguided by all of the stories society mm. tells me. So... So, yeah, I think we're all driven by care and just need to try different strategies. Yeah. Yeah. And we shall. All right. So thank you. Thanks for being on Team Human. And we are always here. If you ever need anything at all from our community, we've got a Discord you can come on and ask for help. We've got a few hundred people who are always looking for ways to plug in and amplify messages or whatever. So we're here for you. Thank you for doing the the Lord's work. Mm -hmm. Praise. Thank you, Douglas. (laughs) And thank you for being on Team Human. Our guest today, my colleague at the IFTF's Equitable Enterprise Initiative and co-founder of the Sustainable Economies Law Center, Janelle Orsi. You can find out about the Sustainable Economics Law Center at the SELC.org. That's the SELC.org. And you can find out about the Equitable Enterprise Initiative at IFTF.org. You can also find those links and more links to Janelle's writings and videos at teamhuman.fm, where you can also become a supporting member of the team. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you can get my new book, pre-order it, Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires, right now. You've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.